Hello, thank you so much. I had a uh, panic moment when I thought that my batteries might be dead, so that was that little moment there. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. If this is your first time visiting Hope, or if it's your first time in a little bit, I wanted to first of all just say welcome. My name is Brandon Hodge, and uh, I've been a member here at Hope Covenant for, for quite a while now. You might recognize me, as Mallory just was trying to place that, um, because I actually lead worship here about once a month, um, and my family and I have actually been attending Hope for, for quite a while now. It's been about four years, which feels just crazy. I think it's that COVID, like, time just kind of flies, right? Uh, so right now, we're in the middle of a sermon series on Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And the series is called Loving Your Blank Neighbor. And first of all, Doug, thank you so much for every week pointing out that it is not loving your blanking neighbor. (laughs) I officially cannot get that out of my head, and that's the only way I can think of it now. So again, yeah, this, this series is centered around the story of the good Samaritan, right? And isn't it kind of funny, like, calling the story the good Samaritan kind of implies a little bit of a bias, Does it not? Like, it's the good Samaritan, of course, because uh, in that time, like, all other Samaritans were definitely thought of as the bad ones. So here in Jesus' parable, we get the exceptional Samaritan, right? That one Samaritan who isn't like all of the other lying, cheating, no good, dirty, rotten Samaritans, right? I mean, I know that the titles for these parables and for these stories weren't written until centuries after the Gospels were written, but man, that title just like really captures the vibe of that historical moment. So let me go ahead and read the parable for us once, and you can follow along up on the screen. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought them to the inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, so again, the series, right, is loving your blank neighbor. And today, I would love if we could have a conversation 
about loving your ethnically other neighbor. You could also think of that as as loving your racially other neighbor, but for simplicity, we're going to stick with that language around ethnicity. And as we'll see in just a moment, that idea of loving across ethnic lines is actually front and center in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But can we start just by talking about ethnicity a little bit more? I really like this definition from, um, of ethnicity from the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it defines it as follows. Ethnicity, which relates to culturally contingent features, characterizes all human groups. We all have ethnicity. It refers to a sense of identity and membership in a group that shares common language, cultural traits such as values, beliefs, religion, food habits, customs, and a sense of common history. Since the beginning of history, right, humans have self-grouped and self-identified in terms of their common language, their common culture, and their common history. And so even the concept of ethnicity itself can be found in the Bible. It's a very, very old idea. But on the flip side, right, for as long as humans have grouped themselves along those ethnic lines, there has existed inter-ethnic conflict along those same lines. When you think of that, I think of uh, the Jews and Palestinians, the Hutu and Tutsi tribes in Rwanda, the British and the French, Cubs fans and White Sox fans. (laughs) Our human need for belonging and having an in-group, right? Everyone has that need, has frequently and kind of paradoxically created conflict and animosity when we come into contact with members of an out-group. And this still happens today. It still happens even within our own country. I hope that in 2022, it's, it's pretty abundantly clear that right here in the United States, and even in our community of Chandler, Arizona, there exists a wide gap of mistrust, suspicion, prejudice, and, anim- and animosity between people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. But if it's not abundantly clear, let me just highlight a few realities for us. First, according to a 2020 PBS NewsHour NPR Ameris poll, such a mouthful to say, (laughs) uh, just 6% of black Americans have a high degree of confidence that the police will treat black and white people equally. And that number for white Americans is 42%. 6%, 42%. In 2017, Pew Research surveyed Muslim Americans And their findings were that 32% of Muslim Americans reported having been treated with suspicion within the past 12 months. 19% were called offensive names. 18% were signaled out by airport security. 10% were signaled out by law enforcement. 6%, 1 in 20, were physically threatened or attacked. And overall, 48% reported having experienced at least one of those things, not ever, but in the past 12 months. And contrary to what we might intuitively think, all those numbers are actually higher in 2017 than they were in 2011. Pew conducted another survey of Hispanic Americans in 2021, asking how their skin color affects opportunity. 62% of Latinos surveyed reported that having darker skin color makes it harder to get ahead. 
32% of darker-skinned Hispanics reported in the past 12 months at least one person told them to go back to their country. And that number for lighter-skinned Hispanics is lower, but it's still 20%. So friends, that is just a tiny sampling of how race and ethnicity affects people's lived experience of their neighbors. Notice the numbers that I gave, the examples I gave, don't even talk about the tangible disparities, right, in income, wealth, education, housing, and more. But just those numbers alone tell us that for people of color, there is a felt sense of mistrust and anxiety just about existing in the United States based solely on ethnic or racial difference. For people of color, there's a feeling that as an ethnic or racial other, I'm not viewed primarily as a neighbor, but as an outsider, as an other. And this breaks my heart. This breaks my heart because the picture that Scripture paints of the kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-generational kingdom in which all things are renewed and reconciled. Didn't we talk about that some last week, right? This beautiful vision of that multi-ethnic kingdom is made abundantly clear for us in Revelation 7-9. Let me read that for us. After these things, I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, and that word for nation right there is the word ethne, where we get the word ethnicity, every tribe, every people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. They were shouting out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice here that John sees distinction in heaven. And sure, like, you know, Paul reminds us in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there is no male nor female, there's no Greek nor Jew, no slave nor free. But Paul's vision, Paul's teaching there is actually more about equality than about uniformity. It's not about everyone being the same, it's about being equal before Christ. So when John sees the people of God worshiping their creator in perfection, he sees and he hears cultural and ethnic differences. And those differences are part of what makes that Revelation 7 image so beautiful. Because our God is a God who creates diverse peoples to glorify him both in their distinction and in their unity. Now, in our own country, right, in the United States, because there is so much diversity here, I think that our country has the potential to, to be, as, as the Puritan settlers put it, right, to be like a city on a hill. We have the potential to be a shining example of a people who can glorify God both in the distinction and in the unity. But tragically, more often than not, I think that we have failed to live up to that ideal. There's a reason that they call the hour between 10 and 12 p.m., right, on Sundays, the most segregated hours in our country. And this just breaks my heart again because so much of this comes down to how we, as individuals, love one another, or as Jesus puts it in the parable, how we become neighbors to one another, right? 
So let's think about the parable again for a moment. I, I want you guys to notice with me that the expert in the law who first brings the question to Jesus, right? What is the question he asks? He says, well, who is my neighbor? Do you guys notice that that question is about boundaries? Jesus, who do I have to love? And by process of elimination, who do I not have to love? Do you see that? And so in, uh, after Jesus tells the parable, right, I, I love how he finishes um, this story. He ends with a, a radical question that he poses to the man. He turns the question on its head and he says, which of the three do you think was a neighbor? Which of the three became a neighbor? Which of the three operated out of a space of making themselves a neighbor to the one who is in need? Jesus is not interested in honoring our boundaries. He is not interested in our drawing lines to love only those who are the most like us and excluding the rest. I think Jesus would pose a question something like this to us. What are you doing to make yourself a neighbor to all, even those who are the most different from you, the most other? Would you take a moment even just to sit with that question? So why does it matter that we love our ethnically different neighbors? One, it matters because God's kingdom is for all people, right? Two, because God calls us into unity in the midst of distinction. And three, because Jesus' invitation in the parable is to extend our categories of who is in to include everyone and anyone. That is why it matters that we do this. Because, friends, there exists a wide gap between Jesus' invitations and the reality that we experience today. So then, how do we love our neighbors who are ethnically or racially different than us? Honestly, it would take like a whole sermon series to really unpack that question well. Um, but I wanted to suggest one starting point. And my main idea here comes from an Aboriginal leader from Canada named George Erasmus. But I first heard this idea from a, a Native American teacher called Mark Charles. And he's someone who I really respect and appreciate. So I'm going to share the quote, and then we'll unpack it together a little bit. Here's the quote. Where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. Okay, what does this mean, right? And how does it relate? Let's pack it apart, pick it apart a little bit. Um, let's, let's do it together. When, when he says common memory, what do you think he means by that? What does common memory mean? Experiences together. What else? Some similarity. A memory that's connected. I like that. Yeah. I would say that he's talking about a shared history, right? That we can agree on the facts of the history together. And then when I think about that second piece of it, right, about forming community, where community is to be formed, to me, I start to think about, like, how do I love the people around me? That's what community is, right? It's a group of people that, that you choose to love. So let's try it this way. I'm going to reword it a little bit. Uh, if I am to love my ethnically different neighbor well, 
I must first create a shared history with them. Does this make sense so far? We're going to unpack it more. Okay, now I'm going to retell Jesus' parable and uh, put it in a little bit different context. A man was walking down Van Buren Street in downtown Phoenix and fell into the hands of muggers who beat him up, leaving him half-dead, empty-handed, and nearly naked, having taken even his expensive clothes. Now, by chance, a a pastor from a thriving local church was walking down the same road. But when he saw the injured man, passed by on the other side. So, too, a well-respected city councilman passed by on the other side. But a young Middle Eastern man, a recent immigrant, came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and clothed him with his own garments, and then he called 911, waiting with the man until the ambulance arrived to transport him to the hospital. That young man insisted on riding in the ambulance with the man, telling paramedics that his, um, his Muslim faith obligates him to see to the man's well-being. The Middle Eastern man stayed with the man until he was discharged, offering to pay his medical expenses and even to give him a ride home in his own vehicle. So friends, which of the three, the pastor, the councilman, or the immigrant, became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of thieves? The immigrant. Go and do likewise. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. But seriously, I I think that if Jesus were to tell the parable today, it might have sounded a little bit like that. And notice what the parable forces us to do when it's placed in a more familiar context to us, right? So first, notice that the parable that I told says nothing about the ethnicity of the protagonist. I just said a man was walking. And that's also true of Jesus' parable, right? He doesn't say... What kind of man? He does not say the ethnicity of the man. And in the absence of specifying, what do you suppose Jesus' audience assumed about the ethnicity of that man? What do we think? That he was like them? That he was that he was a Jew, right? That he was like them. A Jewish man. And likewise, most of us probably pictured a man who either looks kind of like you or who fits some other kind of more big um, kind of cultural normal, right? Which, which in the U.S. I think would mean that some of us might have pictured a white man. And that points out a universal human bias that's called the in-group bias. So the definition for that is right up here. But the in-group bias, according to the decisionlab.com, is the tendency for people to give preferential treatment to others who belong to the same group that they do. Do you see how Jesus' parable forces people to look at their own bias? And hopefully my parable did something similar for us as well. It forces us to stare in the face of our own prejudices. And when he asks them, right, who became a neighbor to the man, we have to respond almost in spite of ourselves that the one that we would normally consider the other, that that is the one who made himself a neighbor. That is the one who did the will of God. It was the Samaritan. It was the immigrant. Can you see why for Jesus' audience, this parable would have been uncomfortable, maybe even offensive? 
So I opened up by saying that calling the parable the good Samaritan kind of imply, or, uh, reveals the, the Jewish bias, right? That in their minds, Samaritans are mostly bad. In Jesus' day, Samaritans and Jews were generally enemies. I think we've all heard some version of that, right? Um, Doug definitely brought it up in his sermon from a few weeks ago. The Jews and the Samaritans experienced ethnic tensions and animosity, and sometimes that even escalated into actual violence. But why? Like, what's, what's the story there? What is that common memory or the history that links those two groups and created the tension and the animosity? Let's talk about that for just a minute. So when God established his law and his covenant with the Hebrews on Mount Sinai, so this is like Old Testament, we're going way back, right? He gave Moses this promise in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice the if statement in that, right? If you obey me, then these promises will be fulfilled. Well, Israel's relationship with Yahweh was always a bit rocky. It did not do a very good job of holding up its end of the bargain there. For example, another one of Yahweh's commandments in Exodus 21 was to worship Yahweh alone and to put no other gods before him. But despite this, the 12 tribes were constantly turning to other local Canaanite gods, especially a god called Baal. Now, Baal was the god of both storms and fertility, and so when the people felt anxious about the upcoming harvest or when they were having difficulty conceiving, you could imagine that they might say, well, this isn't working for us, let's turn to Baal. Let's offer sacrifices to Baal. But obviously that angered and it grieved the heart of God who wanted the worship of the Israelites to be exclusive to Yahweh. Now, shifting gears just a little bit, up through Israel's first three kings, and that was Saul, David, and Solomon, the 12 tribes were a united kingdom with the temple being built in Jerusalem by King Solomon, right? And the temple was the place where the presence of God would dwell among the people. But after a time, even Solomon himself began to worship other gods besides Yahweh. And because of this, Yahweh told Solomon that he was going to split the kingdom in two, leaving Solomon's descendants only with one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And this promise came to, a, came to fruition when a man named Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon's descendant, King Rehoboam. I know the names are so similar. I love that Old Testament name stuff. <laughs> but after a bloody civil war, Jeroboam successfully split the kingdom and became the king of ten of the tribes, which carried on the name of Israel and also became known as the Northern Kingdom. Are we tracking so far? Okay. So now we have the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital became Samaria. Okay, I'm seeing some nods, so we're seeing where this is going. And the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem, and again, housed the temple of Yahweh. That southern kingdom would eventually, over time, 
become known simply as the Jews. So let's take a quick pause here, and I want to ask a question to get us thinking about this. Which kingdom or king in the story is the good guy? Depends on your perspective. I'm seeing a, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the answer is neither, right? And so which one is the bad guy? Both or neither, right? <laughs> and it's really, it's really important to remember this. Let's actually anchor in this for just a moment. As humans, we love to have clear-cut good guys and bad guys in our stories. We love Star Wars because it's like dark side bad, light side good, right? But most of human history doesn't work that way. Obviously, Solomon sinned against God, yeah? But later, it was going to be the kingdom of Judah and not Israel that would bring salvation to the world through Jesus, now, as happened in these days, the northern kingdom also practiced idolatry and started turning to other gods. They were not perfect. And eventually, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians, who destroyed their capital and deported uh, the entire ruling class to Assyria. And then over a period of about 20 years, the Assyrians systematically killed any Israelites who resisted and deported all the others to Assyria. And over time, those former people of the northern kingdom intermarried with the Assyrians, and their culture and ethnicity evolved into something new. They became what would later be known as the Samaritans. Are we following? Okay. And these Samaritans would continue to worship Yahweh alongside all the other gods of Assyria and other places. However, when they worshipped Yahweh, they would do so on Mount Gerizim rather than in the Jerusalem temple. And so what did the Jews think about this? The Jews viewed them both ethnically and religiously as other. They essentially viewed them as apostates and pagans. So the Jews saw the Samaritans as impure because of their mixed ethnicity and their differing religious practices. And the Samaritans would resent the Jews' attitude of religious and ethnic superiority. Can we see why there would have been a lot of conflict between these two groups? Okay, why do I tell this long and complicated story of the, his, of the Samaritans and the Jews? It's not just to show off, I promise. There's a few reasons. The first one is I want to remind us that history is always complicated. It is rare that there are clear good guys or bad guys, just as we see in this story. The second reason is that when Jesus tells his parable in Luke 10, it's important to remember that there is a whole history there, right? The people who are listening know this history, but we don't always know it 2,000 years later reading in on it. That mutual animosity between the Jews and Samaritans is deeply rooted in a shared history. And each side has massaged their own history, right, to make themselves look like the... The good guys, as happens. Let's go back to the main idea. Where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, the same history, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. Between Jews and Samaritans, common memory was lacking 
because the, our community was lacking, rather, because there was no common memory between the two groups. Each side held tightly to their own version of the history, and that allowed them to continue to justify their own group's hatred and suspicion of the other group. I'm going to tell you guys a story from my own life um, that kind of illustrates my own hesitancy to create common memory around ethnicity and race. So I think there should be a slide. Oh, there we are. So this is my wife, Rahel. She has the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. Most people tend to agree when they see her. Anyways, we got married in 2014 after having dated for something like eight months and then a, a quick-ish seven-month engagement. It wasn't like the fastest thing ever, but we certainly didn't take our sweet time about the whole thing, right? You'll see why that matters in just a second. Anyways, a few months after our wedding, we were spending time at my parents' house, and Rahel found this book on my family's bookshelf that was a genealogy that my aunt had compiled. And it traced my family on my dad's side all the way back to like the 17 or 1800s, definitely pre-Civil War. Anyways, as we were looking at my earliest ancestor in this book, somehow my aunt had actually gotten a hold of his last will and testament. So Rahel is going through all of the things that he's passing down to his kids, right? The house, the land, the cattle. And then as nonchalantly as if he's describing any other piece of property, he goes through the slaves. He lists them each by name. And then he moves on to other pieces of furniture or other household items. And my wife is just horror-stricken reading this, like, who and what have I married into? <laughs> Rahel's family is from Ethiopia, right? The same continent from which these slaves were kidnapped, sold, shipped across the Atlantic, and then sold again to the highest bidder. Now, obviously for me, I had no interest in defending slavery. It's indefensible. But in that moment, when Rahel is in the middle of this existential crisis, who is this man I married? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for my children, right? I did respond defensively. My first reaction was to say something like, well, you know, if you trace like most white people's history back far enough, I'm sure there's some connection to the slave trade there. I'm not, I'm not different, I'm not exceptional. And beyond that, I, I don't have any like personal connection to any of this, right? I didn't personally buy or sell humans for a profit. I'm not a racist. I thought that she was kind of overreacting at first, to be honest. But once I got that out of my system, gradually at first, I began to learn and I began to create a common memory with my wife. I read book after book about the histories that various ethnic groups have experienced in their relationship to the United States. And as I did so, I learned about a constant motif of dehumanization and of categorizing people by race and skin color in order to justify an unequal distribution of economic opportunity, wealth, and access to education. And as I learned these things, I was forced to ask some hard questions of myself. I was forced to ask, did my family's connection to slave ownership and a greater access to things like credit 
give them an advantage in terms of wealth building, which even generations later gave me a leg up. How does the portrayal of black folks either and, and, and other ethnic minorities in early Hollywood cinema and even the news, right, lead to the stereotypes and the narratives that I tell myself about people of color? How did the reality of my family's history around slavery impact biases that I might still hold, maybe even unknowingly, about black people today? If this sounds like a hard process, it's because it, it was. It was a very, very hard process. And it took a long time. It's still taking a long time. I'm still in this process. But if I wanted to love my wife well, I needed to create common memory with her. Maybe I'm not directly responsible for slavery or for Jim Crow, but I am responsible today, right now, for the way that I interact with, that I think about, and that I love my neighbors who are ethnically different than me. And for me, that includes how I love my own wife. This process meant staring down hard truths and then accepting my own place within those truths. And then, on top of all that, I had to actively choose against self-denial, against self-loathing, and against shame, because all of those things would have just derailed that whole process. And the good news right here as Christians, I, I want to hang out here for a second, that the good news as Christians, right, in terms of the self-loathing, the denial, and the shame, is that Jesus has already taken our guilt and our shame, Amen. On the cross of Christ, Jesus declared victory over racism, over injustice, slavery, and death. Nobody, none of us are defined by the worst thing that we've done. And none of us are defined by the worst thing that our people have done. First and foremost, right, we are God's beloved. We are children of the Most High God. But rather than that reality giving me the right to just look away because, well, Jesus just took care of all that, right? Instead, the reality of the cross means that we can lean into hard realities without shame and without fear because Christ has freed us in order to make ourselves neighbors to an ever-expanding group of people. He has freed us, people of God, in order to love as freely and as widely as Jesus loved. Over time, my journey helped me to build greater trust and greater intimacy with Rahel, who could see that my process of learning was not only transforming my mind, it's not just a bunch of ideas that we hold, but it transforms our whole selves. When we're able to know the history, we can connect it to the realities that we see today. And that meant I was able to more quickly trust her when she told me about her own personal experiences of discrimination. I could lament and mourn with her as we heard the news of another unarmed black person being killed by police. And I began to build deeper friendships that were increasingly diverse because other people of color found me to be trustworthy, believing and empathetic of their experiences. But I don't want to make it sound like this whole thing was just like sunshine and rainbows, right? These things I learned were difficult 
And the things that I learned were shaking me to the core of my identity. But I just couldn't ignore it anymore. I couldn't ignore the facts anymore. I couldn't ignore anymore the story of 144 Apache Indians, all but eight of whom were women and children, who were massacred in Camp Grant, which is just southeast of Phoenix, and happened just 150 years ago. It's not a long time ago. I couldn't ignore that the institutionalized slavery that brought massive wealth to people who looked like me and left the ancestors of those slaves, not with opportunity, right, but with Jim Crow laws, with redlining, and with mass incarceration. I couldn't anymore just gloss over the Chinese immigrants who voluntarily immigrated into the U.S. to work on the Transcontinental Railroad, but were then paid a fraction of what white workers made. Their housing conditions were horrific and worse than their white counterparts, and they were given the most dangerous jobs to do. I could keep going, right? I could keep listing, but I'm not going to. I'll spare us that. I understand, family of God, that it's hard to hear about the failures of our nation. But it is so essential, if we want to live up to the kingdom reality of a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-generational people of God, right? We have to do the hard work of creating common memory, and that begins with facing up to our difficult history, and then accepting where we stand within that history. It meant me that I had to accept, at least in part, that my opportunity and the legacy of my family's generational wealth was directly connected to slavery and the dehumanization of African people. And I had to accept that that same history led to our current reality in which black Americans are more likely to be pulled over by police, more likely to have their vehicle searched, more likely to be dealt out the maximum penalty for things like drug possession, and more likely to experience broken homes as a result of these other realities creating a vicious cycle. This was the painful but essential and ultimately beautiful work of creating common memory. So for us, what is the first step that we can take in creating common memory together? First and foremost, I'm gonna start with prayer. We can pray for the courage and the freedom that only God can give us. This is not an easy journey. I think I've already highlighted that pretty well. Um, so would we remember that as God's beloved, we are all covered by God's infinite grace and that we can do nothing, nothing to be separated from God's infinite love. We do not have to enter into this out of shame or guilt. It is counterproductive, in fact, to do that. Second, can we begin a journey of creating common memory together? I think the most practical way to do this, honestly, is to just pick up some books. Uh, there are, at your local libraries, hundreds of books on these kinds of topics, and they're available you know, in hard copy, they're available uh, as ebooks or audiobooks, and they're all completely free. We all have access to this. But here's a few suggestions that I would give you guys for some, um, some books to start off with. The first is Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles. Again, that's the guy that the quote came to me from, right? Uh, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Brown Church by Robert Chow Romero, and Race and Place by David P. Leong. 
Um, we'll come back to that slide in just a moment in case you'd like to take pictures or even like write some books down, start ordering them while you're sitting there. I'm fine with that. And then third, as we forge common memory by learning our history, can we adopt a posture of humility by believing the stories of communities of color? There's an author that I really, really love named Brene Brown. Any Brene Brown fans in the room? Okay. She's speaking about empathy in her book, Atlas of the Heart, and she says this, we need to dispel the myth that empathy is walking in someone else's shoes. It's impossible. You can't walk in someone else's shoes, right? Rather than walking in your shoes, I need to learn how to listen to the story you tell about what it's like in your shoes and believe you even when it doesn't match my experience. Can we pray for courage, learn the history, and adopt a posture of humbly believing? Friends, God's intention throughout Scripture is to create a people for himself who would be a blessing to every nation. And it's through us, people of God, that Christ is inviting ourselves to make ourselves neighbors to an increasingly diverse web of relationships, that we can bring reconciliation where there is animosity, that we can bring peace where there was conflict, and that we can bring justice where there was oppression. And that, my friends, is what it looks like to love our ethnically different neighbors well. Let me pray for us. And worship team, would you come up? Lord, thank you so much for the reality that in Christ we are free. We are free from guilt. We are free from shame. But that does not mean, God, that we are free from responsibility or free from owning the world that we have inherited. So much the opposite, God. In this parable, I love that you model loving our neighbors as choosing intentionally to make ourselves a neighbor to whomever we possibly can, regardless of ethnic difference, regardless of gender difference, regardless of how easy or hard it is, regardless of whether it's a global neighbor or a local neighbor. Jesus, would, would our reality of being saved, redeemed, and transformed by you anchor us, anchor us deeply in our identity, so that as we forge common memory, as we learn the history, we can stay firmly grounded and firmly rooted in who we are. And that while it is difficult, it does not have to be, um, it, it does not have to destroy us, and it will not because of you. Lord, I pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.